Well, good morning to you again. Uh, we're in a series with just a few weeks left, a series of looking at the book of James, James chapter 5. I'd like to go ahead and invite you. Uh, just We're going to jump into it quick and fast and furious this morning. James chapter 5. Uh, it's in the New Testament there for you. Uh, James is this guy who just launching in and speaking about who we need to be as believers, as Christians, in the midst of hardship, persecution, etc. Okay, we're going to be able to speak about that some more today, but James chapter 5, it's the last chapter, and uh, we'll be able to spend these next few weeks kind of finishing up with James, and then we're going to jump into a series about who Daniel was in the Old Testament, uh, so much more than jumping into a lion's den there. Um, and God rescuing him. And so we want to better jump into that series before we walk into, once again, a season of Holy Week, looking at Palm Sunday and also Easter. I don't want to call anybody out with the phone, by the way, but real quick, I've always wanted to, like, answer it. Like, hey, this is Pastor Joel. We're in a service right now. You want to come? Wouldn't that be cool? So if it happened, like I don't mind one bit. I'm used to crying babies and everything else. But if anybody else has their phone uh, go off in this service, that's cool with me. Just come hand me the phone. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Um, I think it would be fun. James chapter 5. James chapter 5, here we go. And this is what it says, beginning with verse 1. Uh, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Uh, this is what I, I, I was telling people before. This is what I read to my children every night before bed. Right? Isn't that great? It's like, oh, I'm going to sleep well. Um, yes, uh, your flesh is going to be like fly, a fire, and it's going to rot, and it's going to be amazing. Um, but it's still important for us to be able to look at this and go, what, what's this communicating? He's calling out, hey, you arrogant rich people, learn some lessons in lament. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to have buckets of tears that are pouring out when Christ returns because of the ways in which you are treating other people. He's calling this out. It's the words of Christ in Luke chapter 6 where it says, Woe to you! Woe to the rich! You've already received your consolation. That's all you get. And now he's calling this out. Now, I want to go ahead and address this because I'm going to run pretty fast today. I'm doing 12 verses, James 5, 1 through 12. But know this. This isn't saying that if you're wealthy, if you're rich, it's wrong. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is it's helping us to evaluate the way we handle that. And what you have to do is go, wait a second, where do you find your hope? In fact, if you want to know if the wealth and the possessions that you have are good or bad, this is what you have to do. You need to have some honest evaluation, an honest assessment of whether or not that's where you find hope. If that's where you find hope, then there's an issue, there's a problem. And so he's speaking to these guys who have found their hope in their wealth, in their possessions. And so now he's calling it out and going, no, it's not about you necessarily having the money, but the way you're handling your life and the way that you find hope in those possessions is a problem. And that's tough for us. Because we can justify really anything in our life. And so he's calling this out. He's frustrated because of the oppression of other people. 
He's letting them know this is not going to last. Don't you understand? Sirach, which is S-I-R-A-C-H, S-I-R-A-C-H. Um, it's one of the letters in the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, to let you know, is simply some letters and some writings um, that were not included in the biblical canon, but still hold some significant weight. That's what the Apocrypha is. And there's numerous parallel passages that we find in the Bible, but also in the Apocrypha that all state the same thing, that talk about, hey, listen, you better lose your silver for the sake of a brother or a friend. Don't let it rust under a stone and be lost. Lay up your treasure according to the commandments of the Most High, and it will profit you more than gold. And so here's James jumping in and letting them know, listen, you better better make sure that you're living according to what Christ desires of you. I know there's hardship. I know there's persecution. The, The movement of Christianity, it was exploding. I mean, it was fast. It was just like, boom. And even in the midst of that explosion, what's a, one of the things that's so phenomenal about that explosion is it was in the midst of tremendous hardship and suffering and persecution. Not like, hey, ha, ha, you're a Christian. We're not talking about that. That's not persecution. That's someone acting in ignorance. They're walking through hardship, persecution, some really horrible difficulty, and yet Christianity was exploding. Why? Because they found their hope in Christ and in nothing else. And so here's James, and he's telling them, listen, live Christ. He speaks about the gold. It's going to corrode. The silver is going to corrode. It's going to eat you up like flesh if you don't get this right. Even your garments. So back then when this was being written, Everybody, the normal person would have one piece of clothing and it would be on their body. That's all they would have. And so here, like if you had multiple pieces of clothing, that was like, wow, you got some money. And so he's letting them know, like remember who he's writing to. He's letting them know, even if you only have one piece of clothing, make sure you have the right perspective. But listen, all those clothes, those things that you think are so awesome and so great, they're not going to last. Where are you finding your hope? What are you putting your hope in? And he just keeps hammering this point home over and over and over again. If your hope is in in anything other than Jesus Christ, you're going to be in a world of hurt. And he's letting them comprehend this. It even reminds them, um, I was preaching not long ago, a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, James chapter 4, talking about being a vapor. Your life is but a vapor, a mist. Like it's just going to come and go, right? You remember this? Just say yes, it makes me feel good. Um, I was preaching on the Bible. There you can run it. Yes. And your life is like a vapor. It's like a mist. And he's reminding them of this and going, listen, wealth is going to rot. Moths are going to eat your clothes. Gold and silver is going to corrode. It's all temporary. It's all temporary. And again, it's not wrong to have wealth. David had tremendous wealth. Solomon had tremendous wealth. But it is a matter of where you find your hope. And that honest assessment is hard. So he's addressing this with them. He's helping us to determine how we even know if wealth, money, has become too important to us by whether or not we are finding hope in that or hope in Christ. And then he continues and he says this, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields 
which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He's jumping in and he's going, listen, you're living according to hope that is found in other things. Your wealth, you think having more clothes is going to bring you fulfillment. It's not. Even your gold and your silver is going to corrode. And on top of that, you're even treating other people poorly. Right? There are a few people, uh, wealth in that day, uh, part of it was measured by what you wore, meaning if you had multiple outfits, but also in garments, uh, according to what type of fabric they were used, the linen, etc. Uh, but the primary way that wealth was determined was owning land. Probably not all that different today, right? And so here are these landowners who are mistreating the people who are working for them. Even in the Old Testament, it was, wrong. It was against the law to not pay your day laborers, that's why they're called that, that day. To even wait until the next day was something that was against the Old Testament law. They're saying, no, you can't do that. Why? Because those people relied on that for the day to feed their children that night. And so now people are going hungry, and they're struggling, they're suffering, they're in persecution because you are taking advantage of them so that you can gain more for yourself. And all of this is unfolding. And he's letting them know you're not living according to God's will. But one of the translations, if you look at the paraphrase, the message, this is what it speaks about that verse. It says, listen, you've looted the earth and you've lived it up. But all you'll have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. Way to go. You can't take any of it with you. You're bullying other people by taking advantage of them. You know that Moses forbade withholding wages. You know that that is... They have a family that's depending upon you paying them. You know that the income that you are receiving by having all this land is significant. It is a lot. And yet you're paying people according to what they will actually work for, not what they're actually worth. Do you see the difference? You're paying someone, hey, we know they're going to only work for five bucks an hour because they just have to have the job and they have nothing else, even though we know this, this usually pays $10.50 an hour or whatever it is. You can change the figures if you want to. We know that they normally typically would, would earn this, but because they need the job, we're going to pay them this because we can get away with it. And so we're going to take advantage of them. And he's going, what are you doing? Why? Because God cares about integrity. And he's saying, maybe this is a question we need to process. Some of us, maybe we even need to evaluate this and to correct a prior wrong because we've done that very thing. And we've chosen to take other people for granted or take advantage of them. And then he jumps into verse 5 where he's letting them know, listen, you fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. Whenever you read about 
the killing of a fattened calf, anything like that. Well, you, you need to know because of the way life was being lived, and unless they had just tremendous amounts of salt pr- to preserve different things, whenever they would kill a fattened calf, they're, they're going to eat as much of it pos- as possible that day. They're just going to eat and eat and eat because then it's, it could go bad, right? And so they want to take advantage of that. But what they were doing is that they were taking that just for themselves. And we know, except, except for some of the festivals, for the poor people, meat wasn't generally even, ex, like they, they couldn't get access to it. They didn't have that type of money for the normal person living in that day. And so except for those festivals, we know that there they are. They're starving. They're hurting. And and now they're just hoarding and gorging as much as they can, even though they know that what they can't eat, even that's going to go bad. Here's um, an important lesson for us. It was, it was mentioned previously by Rachel. What just happened in New York City, guys? Um, the fact that you can now abort a baby full term. Right? It used to be about what was viable. Don't give me that. I have kids on this front row who are not full term, and they are from the Lord. And hear me say, you don't hear me preach on political positions, but you will hear me preach on biblical positions. And one of the things that we need to learn today and what they were having to to be taught even then by James is that living by what is legal doesn't mean that you're living by something that is godly. I mean, I've said this so many times in my life, I can't tell you. Simply living by something that is legal doesn't mean that it's godly. And we are called to live in the godly. We are called to chase God at all costs. And what he's doing is going, hey, listen, you're being consumed. He's writing to who? Believers. Here's James. You're getting consumed. Your gold's going to corrode. Your silver's going to corrode. Your clothes are going to be eaten up by moths. Don't you understand? You're taking advantage of all these other people. Stop. We need to be reflecting God. I don't care if it's legal. I care if it's godly. Start asking your friends that. Is what we're doing right now godly? I know that they agreed to work for this wage, but we know that it's valued higher than that. Churches excel at that. We go, well, it's ministry. You're supposed to be just broke. I'm fine. Hear me say that. I'm not talking about me, but I've been there. I've been there where I've prayed for checks to come in the mail. And I'm going, what are we doing? How are we going to process this? And so he jumps in. He says, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to give, he's giving instruction on how to be godly, to be a believer in the midst of hardship and persecution. No matter what the, the scenario is around you, this is what you need to be doing. And he says this, be patient then. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. They were waiting for the Lord to return any moment, okay? But he's saying, be patient until then. And to make a comparison, a parallel, he then says this, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. We know there, in that area of the world, they had at least two different growing seasons. Here, because of the weather, we have one. July 1st to July 2nd. 
And here they are, and they're going, wait. They're waiting for their spring and those autumn rains to come, and they're desperate for them because this is truly survival for them. And he's like, I know you're waiting on the Lord as well, but as dry and as parched as you are, because that's the dry season, know that the rain will come. Some of us in this room, even right now, are in a season of life where we're in the dry season. And maybe it's because of our marriage and where it is. Maybe it's because of employment, whatever it might be. Maybe it's physical illness, but we're in a dry season. Some of us are in a dry season just because we're arrogant and we're cocky and we're prideful and we don't want to give up anything that we desire regardless of what God says. Which really means that you've chosen the dry season for yourself, but we're in a dry season nevertheless. And what James is communicating is be patient. The water is coming. Christ is returning. He is the answer. He is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Be patient, even in the midst of the dry season. And some of you have been in those dry seasons, and some of you are a testimony that even out of the dry seasons, you have seen the living water in the name of Jesus Christ come and bless your life. So he's saying, be faithful. He says again, you too, in verse 8, be patient and stand firm. Establish your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. It's the very first thing he's trying to make sure we understand is that we need to be patient. We have to be patient. And just keep running. Grind it out. Another thing he's telling us, and this is again, James, writing to believers, he's like, if you really know the Lord, this is how you now need to live. You're going to be patient. You're not going to take advantage of everybody around you. You're not going to find your hope in the wrong things. And so in order to do that, you're going to be patient, and then you're going to stand firm or establish your hearts in him. You're going to care more about God and about Jesus than you are yourself. That's what that's communicating. You're going to care more about that than anything else. You're going to let your faith be firm without wavering. You're you're going to practice faithfully what it is to look like Christ. And even when you're worn out, you're going to keep fighting. Another way to say it is we need to resolve to remain faithful in all situations. It's a decision you make. That you're not going to give up and you're not going to go, wait a second, it's too hard for me right now. You're going to resolve to remain faithful in all situations. Knowing that the rain, the rain will come. One of the, the ways to think about standing firm, establishing your heart in Christ. I think James, one way to think about it is he's encouraging the believer to live a life reflecting Christ and not only carrying his name. So that's a good way to think about it. We need to learn, James is encouraging them to claim more than the name of Jesus, but to actually carry his life. And this is what I mean by it, especially in this type of area. Everybody claims to know God and to know Jesus. They claim that, but they don't carry his life. They don't carry his grace. They don't carry his forgiveness. They don't carry his reliance upon the Heavenly Father. They claim something by name, but they don't live it with their life. 
You know what I'm talking about, right? That, that's worthy of an amen. Amen. Because we've all, every single person in this room has been there before. We may claim something. It doesn't even have to be your faith. You may claim something, but you don't really grab hold of it and say, this is how I'm going to live my life. We, we say, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm on a diet. I'm going to get in shape. And I can tell you right now, I have a hankering for Oreos. I'm going to the store after this. Right? We claim something, but then do we really carry it out? Do we live it? Do we make sure that that's a part of who we are? And there are too many people today who are claiming the name of Jesus Christ, but they're not living it out. They're not, they're not carrying his life with them. And we got to get honest with ourselves. Because these people are walking through crazy difficulty. Another thing he then jumps into is, yes, if you really want to make sure that your hope isn't found in all the riches and all the wealth and the clothes and that you're, just not, you're not taking advantage of everybody around you, you need to be patient, you need to stand firm. But the other thing that you really need to do is you need to, you need to not grumble. Don't grumble. This is particularly interesting to me, and here's why. He's speaking to people. Just, if you get any, make sure you just try to listen to this. Please, please, please. He's speaking to people who are trying to eat that day. And he's speaking to people who the only clothing they have on is what is, is all they have. And he's telling them, don't grumble. And I know the world that we live in has shifted. I get it, right? Well, I, when I was growing up, here was the difference. When I was growing up, a vacation was my parents dropping us off at my grandparents so they could go to a conference for the church. And that was like living large because when I got, I thought it was vacation because whenever I went to my grandparents, I got Pringles. Pringles and Yoo-Hoo. Yes, it was out there when I was a child. Like, that is, that's why I'm so strapping today. I lived on Pringles and Yoo-Hoo. But that was good stuff. And now my kids are like, well, we only went on two vacations. Right? right? We start to shift the way we think. I used to be so incredibly grateful for the bags of clothes that would show up at my front door. And it, life has shifted. And so here he is writing to people who only have one piece of clothing, who are trying to feed their kids for that one day, and yet even in that situation, we're saying don't complain because if your hope is in Christ, you got all you need. Amen. And so when I evaluate the, the situation with, within our world today, I go, wait a second, who are we to complain even if we are to die, if you die knowing Christ, you will have an eternity rejoicing and worshiping the God of all gods. Once again, that's called a good day. And he's writing to these guys and saying, don't complain. And some of us, we can't make it until 5 o'clock tonight without complaining about something. You know what? This meat that I just ordered, I don't know if it's warm enough. You know what? I asked for some queso and they cheapened it. They barely gave me any. 
And we live in a world of complaining rather than living in a world that is hopeful in the name of Jesus. That's something I would encourage you to do today. Is every single time this week, this year, this life, any single, every time one of your friends or family member complains about anything, call them out and say, you know what, I hear you complaining. I know that's not what you want to do. Just make sure I'm not around for that. But why would you not do that? Because these are instructions from James to the believer of stop complaining. Stop grumbling. And then he jumps in to the last few verses. And he says, as an example of suffering and patience. There's that patience again, weaving its way back into this beautiful tapestry of a letter. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by in, under any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. He knew that the majority of these people were, were Jewish of nature. They're looking at these, these prophets of old, and they are mentors, and he's telling them, listen, learn from them. They walk through horrendous things, and yet they remained faithful. And he uses specifically the example of Job, who we know had suffering and loss all around him. But he stayed faithful. You think about some of them. You think about just anybody who, that's what happens. The majority of the people of God, period, will walk through opposition. You think about one, Job, that's mentioned here, but you also think about Joseph being sold into slavery. You think about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. You think about Stephen being stoned, right, in the book of Acts 7, 8, 9. And then you, of course, think even about Christ and all the different things that he walked through and the opposition that was there. And yet every single time, these people are remaining faithful. They're remaining faithful. They're remaining faithful. They're standing firm. They're establishing their hearts fully in Christ, and they're not abandoning that. Even if that's the only piece of clothing that they have on, even if they're not quite sure how their kids are going to get fed later on, they're not complaining, they're not grumbling, and they're staying true to who Christ is and how God has designed them. And some of us have, in some regard in our life, when it comes to God, we've quit. And he's saying, don't quit. He tells them, I, I want you to stay true. Learn from Job. Learn from these other guys. And he says, but above all, my brothers, don't swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any under, under any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, oaths, they serve to show the tenacity, the veracity of one's intention. If there were repercussions for them, if they were to make a, an oath towards something and to break that, then they, they would think that they themselves would be cursed. And he's telling them, no, 
Don't do it. Live according. If you're a believer, make sure, let, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. One of the things we talk about in my home is, listen, if you have to say I promise after something, there's a problem. I should be able to ask you a question. Hey, what about this? And you say this. You don't have to say, I promise. Did you break this? Did you just shatter my window? No, I promise. You you don't need to say, I promise. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because what you're saying is, now I'm actually going to mean it, but every other time, you don't actually, you probably shouldn't trust me. Can we not be people of integrity? I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know the world is chasing itself rather than chasing God. But here's James writing this letter and saying, can't we get more? Can't we do more? Can't we live in his grace and his hope in a way in which we're willing to do the hard no matter what? To make sure that we stay the course. But that's, one, that's probably the big theme that I would get from this is James is writing to all of them. He's saying, just be tenacious in following Jesus. Be tenacious in following Jesus. Be fervent in following Jesus. Have so much tenacity and strength and willpower and determination that nothing knocks you off course. Not the hope that you find in wealth and in riches. Not the clothes that you have on that that are going to be eaten and, and run away one day, right? Not taking advantage of the people who are working for you. He's saying, be tenacious in following Jesus. Because here he is writing this, he's letting him know some of you have gotten off track. Some of you, you don't get it. You claim his name, but you're not living it out. You're not carrying Jesus in your life. And you know it. And for me not to tell you this, I would be cheating you. We need to hear this. Our world needs to hear this message. I want to conclude with a story this morning. Um, my friend Tom Langworthy is here. I'm going to ask that you stand up for just a moment. I don't normally do this. You know that. I know the camera operators are going, he's in the dark. Um, it is so good to have you here, brother. So if you don't already know, um, and I don't want you to fall over so you can sit down. And you're going to know why I'm saying that in a second. Tom is my neighbor. So, you know, Ben and Jess right over here, uh, they go to church here. They're married, awesome people, striving to know Christ more and more, trying to raise kids to do the same. Um, Jess, um, well, she grew up next door to me. Tom is my neighbor, like right beside me. When I say neighbors, um, he hears every conversation I have. He'll come over. Stop yelling at your children. Um, you dance a lot. And I'm getting now. And he's like, okay. Um, so about six months ago, my friend Tom had a heart attack. And it was a severe heart attack. Put it like this. Right now, I believe you have, what, 18, 19% of his heart working. That's it. The rest of it's done. Pacemaker recently. This last week, back in the hospital, almost died from that one. Stuff running all down his body, in his body, everything else. 
And for four and a half years, I've had the joy of being this man's neighbor. And I've been really calm and nice about Jesus. Not wanting to scare him off. Hey, what's going on? Like, hey, you got to come to church. Hey, how about this men's thing? And he always has a reason why not. But I love you. And so um, it was Friday. My friend Troy Ritchie, who goes to church here, he's doing his driveway with a snowblower, and I've got the shovel, and I'm doing the stairs. And his wife made the mistake of looking through the door and waving, which I took that as, come on in. <laughs> Shocker. And I go in, and I sit down, and one of the very first statements I make, me being Joel, is, What's your deal with God? It's very tactful, wasn't it? Because he is literally waiting for a phone call with all the tests for a heart transplant. Within three to four hours, he has to be at the hospital. That means they're taking, this is where he is physically. He knows this. Where he is right now is they need to find a heart beating in the heart uh, in the chest of someone else right now. And when that person dies, they need to get it out of that chest fast enough to get it into his chest so he has hope of living. That's real. Is that real enough for you? And so I sit down with him and I say, what's your deal with God? He goes, well, I just don't like organized religion. And me being Joel, I said, that's a bunch of crap. That's you not wanting to take the responsibility for the faith that you claim. Pretty close. And so then the conversation was, hey, listen, you see my kids running around, right? He goes, yeah, I love your kids. I want to keep seeing your kids run around. And I said, my girls, I think about my girls. Here's the thing with my girls. When I see my girls and I wake up in the morning, I go to bed, I don't just give them a high five and be like, hey, see you later. You know what I do to them? I give them a monstrous hug. You see, there's a difference in giving somebody a high five and embracing them. When you've never received that embrace, you have a different type of relationship with them. And I said, Tom, you need to actually, you need to stop this, this game that you're playing of where you occasionally walk by God and you give him a high five and you need to allow God to hug you, to receive him and to enter into a new relationship with him. And I said, when are you going to stop playing the game and actually hug God back? And his response was, right now. Followed by, I know I'll see you Sunday. And there are so many people that I know who are treating God with an occasional high five as they run by rather than allowing Him to come in close and to say, I want all of you. And the part that gets me is how many of us have neighbors right now that we're not willing to walk up to and go, when will you let God hug you? 
And you think, well, that's not the way to do it. Well, you know what? It's a lot better than keeping my mouth shut because I'm afraid of what they may say about me. You coward! Stop claiming the name of Jesus. Live Jesus. That's what's going to change a world. That's what's going to change everything. It's only the hope of Jesus Christ. We have nothing else that's eternal to offer. It's all temporary. It's all going to fade. It's all going to rot. It's all going to fade away and never be here again. But the name of Jesus is eternal. Provide that to people. Let it seep deeply into your heart and run forth out of this place and tell people the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. I know it's hard. I know you don't have much. I know you haven't figured out how you're going to feed your kids tonight. I know that it's easy to be taken advantage of by other people who have more than you do, but you stay faithful and you stay the course. And some of us have given up. saying keep running friend I am going to pour my life into yours and in a way I feel sorry for you (laughs) he has more for you and he has more for you I pray that you'll be tenacious in following Jesus. Some of you are tenacious in all kinds of things. You're tenacious in following a sport or in making sure that you make enough money that you want to make to have as many homes as you want to have, whatever it is. Be tenacious in following Jesus. Allow him to come in close enough to embrace your life and for you to receive that and to embrace him back. Be tenacious in following Jesus. Know his strength know his power, know his grace, know his forgiveness, and run after his goodness. Run after it. And be tenacious in all that you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Carry more than his name. Carry all of them because it brings eternity. May God bless you. May God keep you in Christ's name.